following audio is from a sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah begin with the people of God in Babylonian exile due to their unfaithfulness. The God of heaven, who is faithful to his promises, then stirs up and empowers his people to walk anew in faithfulness and rebuild the ruins. For more information about Sacred City Moline, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 9, 1 through 15. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord, my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you, my God, for our inequities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our inequities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the land of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the king of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanliness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever." And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our inequities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. This is the word of the Lord.
I'd encourage you, if you have your Bibles, that you would actually take those out. Uh, helps to give a little bit of uh, context. And we're going to be looking at the entire book of Ezra for just in a minute here. And so it'll help you to kind of follow along. So again, I encourage you to take your Bibles out, if you would, and go to, uh, go to Ezra. Well, I would uh, um, concur. Uh, thank you, Trent. Um, I would concur. Pastor Sam, weep. I was weeping while I was singing today. Um, so God uses his songs to hit square into our hearts. And so thank you. And I think it's good to, to weep and to cry uh, over right things. And it's good to weep and cry over God's good gifts. And it's good to weep and cry over what God has done for us um, in our Savior. And it's certainly true as we come to this passage here in in Ezra of um, hope that uh, we have. So as we get ready to uh, enter into it, let's uh, begin with a, a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, men and women in whom you have gifted, uh, whom you have given to us, who are like Ezra, wanting to use their gifts well and are skilled. And so, Father, we do thank you for those who are skilled uh, to lead us in worship we're thankful, Father, for your son, the most skilled. Who stood in our place. So Father, as we come to your word, we pray that as we try to enter back into a time and place that is far and distant from our own culture. We pray that you'd help us to understand stand that, understand that place and that culture and what you're commanding and then understand, Father, how it comes down to our own lives that as we're sitting here, that this word that you have given to us, this book that you have given to us would be alive again as it is alive. Your spirit would be ministering to our hearts and our lives this morning wherever Whoever is here, Father, wherever we are at in this journey that you have us on, we ask that you would be ministering to us in a way that will bring you most glory. And Father, you have this way that as you bring yourself most glory, it brings the greatest good to our hearts and our souls. So we are grateful that you would intertwine us into that purpose. So we pray that you would do that for us this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I just, um, I've just finished The Lord of the Rings for another time. Uh, I read and reread um, because um, taken not only, uh, by the way, that, don't be impressed by that. I, I read it right before I go to bed and I, it only takes me about two pages before I fall asleep. So, I, you know, it's, it's not all that impressive. I don't know how many times I've read it because uh, it goes so slow for me to get all the way through it, but I just keep rereading it and rereading and rereading. And I read it uh, not, only, not only because of the story, but by Tolkien's uh, descriptive powers. There, there are a number of there are a number of dark moments in the story, and much like our lives, but the more darker moments that I can think of as I was reading through this, this story is Shelob's lair. Uh, 
I want to read this for you a little bit. Frodo and Sam are ever closer to the end of their quest, and as they come closer to that end, more and more darkness is the environment of which we find ourselves uh, reading, and more and more are they trudging through an ugliness. So here's a small section that I believe illustrates what you and I have to deal with on a regular basis, and that is uncovered sin. I think this illustrates it well. Some way ahead, a mile or so, perhaps was a great gray wall, a last huge upthrusting mass of mountain stone. Darker it loomed, and steadily it rose as they approached until it towered up high above them, shutting out the view of all that lay beyond. Deep shadow lay before its feet. Sam sniffed the air. Ugh, that smell he said. It's getting stronger and stronger. Presently, they were under the shadow, and there in the midst of it, they saw the opening of a cave, tunnel actually. This is the way in, says Gollum softly. This is the entrance to the tunnel. Shelob's lair. Out of it came a stench, Not the sickly odor of decay, but a foul reek, as if filth unnameable were piled and hoarded in the dark within. Drawing a deep breath, they passed inside. In a few steps, they in utter and impenetrable dark. The air was still, stagnant, heavy, and sound fell dead. They walked as it were in a black vapor wrought of veritable darkness in itself that as it was breathed brought blindness not only to the eyes but to the mind so that even the memory of colors and of forms and of any light faded out of thoughts. Night always had been and always would be, and night was all. A stench, darkness, a description of a place of profound evil, of sin, particularly of uncovered sin. Ezra in chapter 9 is admitting an ugliness, a darkness, a stench of sin that exists not as he looks out, as, look, as Ezra looks out into the Persian world uh, outside of himself or even within the confines of Jerusalem, looking outside of these confines of Jerusalem. No, but rather he's seeing the stench, the ugliness, the decay of sin within the people of God and as near as himself. Sin that has now been uncovered, rotting, molding, decaying, overlooked over time. What do we do with the darkness and stench of sin that becomes uncovered within the people of God and within ourselves? Well, I'm, I'm continuing to work through John Bunyan's uh, book, The Fear of God. Uh, I think last time I preached here, I told you I was starting it. And in this book, he raises the question and the deep concern about sin since redemption. He, he says, in my own words, he says, since I have come to faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, now in Bunyan's words, he says, 
I have grievously sinned against God. And then ask this question. Now where do I go? And that's the question, where do, where do I go with my sin, my uncovered sin that grieves me today? So here's the flow of the passage this morning. Uh, first, the uncovering of sin, and then the response to that sin, and then finally, the hope and help in the darkness of the sin. So let's start with the uncovering of sin. Things have been really going well uh, uh, regarding uh, God's people. They have been in captivity for over 70 years, first to the Babylonians and then to the Persians. Uh, there is a recognition by those uh, with the prophetic no uh, that God has told his people that through Jeremiah there would be a return to Jerusalem over 70 years. So, sure enough, if you go to Ezra chapter 1, this is what we read in verse 1. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Here it is. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of the God that is in Jerusalem. Verse 5, then rose up the heads of the father's house of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about, uh, about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of the gods of his gods. Chapter 2, then, we have a description and naming of the returning exiles. Chapter 3, the altar is rebuilt. The temple foundation is started and completed. And end of chapter 3, there is actually a celebration. So we go to chapter 3 and we read this word in verse 11, these words in verse 11. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And yes, there was opposition. The opposition rises up against the work. And yet God uses that opposition not only to give state approval, but state resources with, without state intervention. So chapter 6, verse 7, we read these words. So turning your Bibles to chapter 6, verse 7. And here we read, chapter 6, verse 7. 
Let the work of the house of God alone. Here's the uh, words of Darius. Let the word, work of the house of the Lord of God uh, be, go alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. Go down to verse 12. May the God who caused his name to dwell there overflow, sorry, overthrow any king or people who shall put out, an, uh, out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. And the temple was finished. Four and a half years after a restart, just in time for the pinnacle feast commemorating their God's rescue and redemption of his people from Egypt, kind of that defining event for the people of God, the place where they had found really their identity, they began to celebrate the Passover. Ezra is receiving all of this news while he is still residing in Persia. This remarkable work of God. And so the, so the man who this book is named after and is introduced in chapter 7, he now gets the opportunity, he is going to come as a priest, verse 6, to, to, as one who is skilled in the law of Moses. A man, according to chapter 7, verse 10, a man who had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in, uh, in Israel. He's coming more than just as a priest, but he's also coming as appointed as kind of an official place, official capacity, something like a secretary of state, so that the king tells him now, chapter 7, verse 25, you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river. All such as know the laws of your God and those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of the Lord your God and the law of the king let judgment be strictly ex- executed on him, whether for death, for banishment, or for the confiscation of his goods, or for imprisonment. So that as Ezra considers all that God has done for this, uh, th- up to this point, he writes verses 27 and 28, Ezra 7, 27 and 28, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before for all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Then chapter eight goes in to further details of his return, a return of which was extremely dangerous, compounded by the amount of gold and silver in his inventory in which he was most likely going to experience ambush. And certainly that was what happened. Chapter eight, verse 31, we discover this. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes, an understanding that they actually happened, ambushes, by the way, and we came to Jerusalem, and we remained there for three days. And then verse uh, verse 33, on the fourth day, within the house of God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth, the the priest, the son of Uriah. Verse 34, the whole was accounted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. In other, in other words, nothing was lost in all of this. Now think, think about this. The majority of the time, Ezra has been in Persia. He's heard and, and, and about how the hand of God was on his people. It's been all reports. 
Perhaps he had longed to go to Jerusalem, but circumstances had prevented him. Perhaps God had a work to do for him there in the courts of Persia. So he has to experience all of God's goodness secondhand, indirectly, simply through the reports that are coming from God's people. From a distance. But now he gets to be a direct part of the work. This is going to be great. Expectations are high. We are going to make disciples, we are going to plant churches, and we are going to renew the cities of the promised land. (laughs) That's the stage set for us. Chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men have been most foremost. Four days in. Sit in that for a minute. High expectations, excited for what he has heard God has done, and now he gets to be part of this. Now he gets to have a direct work to do. Four days in, he finds out there is sin. Uncovered Sin, the uncovering of sin. So what's the response? The response to sin. Well, the first response to the uncovering of sin is in your surprise, don't be surprised. Within the story of God, where God has invited us into his family, I do think it is reasonable to believe that we will not be people who will live sin in our life or live out sin within our lives. It is reasonable to be surprised. It's reasonable to be surprised by your own sin. Didn't know it was there. It's reasonable to be surprised by the sin that is outside of ourselves. What's my hitting? Down here. Ah. Let me put it way back here. What am I doing? Yeah. In this already not yet state, we still live in this flesh. We still have an enemy, Satan, and we live in a world. That has fallen. Paul writes, this is Romans chapter 7, verse 25, or sorry, verse 15, Romans 7, verse 15. He writes, For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, 
I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. No surprise when sin is uncovered. Yet surprised which leads to the second response. Verses three and four. Mourning, mourning. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. And then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. The the word appalled is an expression of great distress. It's an expression reserved for hopelessness throughout the Old Testament. Listen how David expresses this hopeless state in Psalm 143 verse 3. Psalm 143 verse 3 says, the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Catch that image? Like those long dead. Therefore my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. It's a reflection on that long season where your world is crushed, a place where there is no light of hope. He writes, he has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. The result being one's spirit is lifeless. My spirit within me is appalled. Not surprising, this word is also used in the context of the oppressive enemy on the godly or within the context of the consequences of sin. See, Ezekiel, he uses this same word, uh, the Hebrew word to describe the hopelessness of those who are suffering under the siege of, of Babylon, a direct consequence of the people of God rejecting him. So Ezekiel writes God's words in Ezekiel 4. He says, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure, and in, the same Hebrew word, and in dismay. I will do this that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in, again the same Hebrew word, dismay, and rot away because of the punishment of their sin. Ezra feels this hopeless condition It is as if there is no life or love of God in his people. It's a state, they're living out a state of being dead to God. So he responds in kind as one who is in mourning. See, we see there, he says, I tore my garment and my cloak. Undoubtedly, Ezra was a man of position and thus of means, but these outwardly signs of success, they don't bring him any hope. The hopelessness of his heart gets expressed outwardly. The heart's ruin is expressed in the ruin of his clothes. And bodily comfort brings no hope. The heart's pain is matched by a physical pain. So he writes, I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. 
So what is the stench and decay coming from? It's coming from this uncovered sin. So why is this sin so bad? What was Ezra's view of sin? And and there were others you saw there in verse 4. So let's just see how the text answers this question. What is the stench and decay of uncovered sin? Well, first thing, it is a direct disobedience to the command of God. That's where the stench comes from. It's just simply a direct disobedience to the command of, of God. Look at the command. It's actually repeated twice in this chapter. It's repeated, it's chapter, uh, or verses 1 and 2, and then it's repeated down in verses, uh, verse 10 through 12. So the middle of, middle of verse uh, 10, it says here, for, um, yeah, middle of verse 10. It says, what should we say then? For we have forsaken your commandments, verse 11, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, here it is, verse 11, the land that you are entering, so he's now just quoting, we're quoting now the uh, Deuteronomy, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands with their abominations that have filled it from the end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for you. Your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. So, so just in general, what is so bad about sin is that it is a direct disobedience to God as the ultimate authority over their lives. Just as we inherently know that there's something wrong with disobeying our parents or our teachers or our civil government in terms of laws. There is by general revelation a sense that there is an ultimate authority over us. But that really doesn't account for the full repulsiveness of the smell of this uncovered sin. We really get the reek of this chapter when we answer probably that silent question that you have had in your mind, which is, What's the big deal about interracial marriage? So let's answer that question. Why this command? Well, look again at verse 1 and the first words the officials used when they approached Ezra. The people of Israel. This isn't about individuals, but a people who are regulated by a religious covenant of which the priests and the Levites, you see that, are to maintain. The officials who approached Ezra and then Ezra himself are simply quoting from the covenant God had made with his people in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. See, God is a covenant-making God. And they are in a covenantal relationship with him. God has always been a covenant-making God. Now, we're not used to this term covenant Um, in our individualistic, independent American culture. My parents, they live in a covenant community back in Greeley, Colorado. Um, 
normal, it's not a 55 plus, they're 88, but it's not 50 or 80, it's not a, 80, a 55 plus community. It's just a normal, a normal community neighborhood of homes, which was developed around a covenant and agreed upon rules that regulate what can and cannot be done in the neighborhood. Now it's a neighborhood that I would estimate is probably 40 to 50 years old. So if you move into the neighborhood, you have to sign a covenant, a covenant agreement. Now you can just imagine how well this goes. When most who sign this have never used the word covenant. And like many of us, new owners, they sign the covenant without reading the covenant. Uh, and there is a board of, um, consisting of neighbors of the neighborhood who meet monthly to address issues within the neighborhood, and one of the issues being covenant violations. It goes horrible. <laughs> the, the concept that people who are virtually strangers to one another and whose only commonality is a street address, so they're like most of our neighborhood neighbors, we, neighborhoods, we don't know our neighbors very well. Uh, the only co commonality is a street address that these people regulate one another's behaviors, that a neighbor who's on the board tells him or her what he or she can do based on a piece of paper and then finds them if they do not comply. It doesn't go well. Yeah, I don't know. See, a covenant is based upon some commonality that people come together around for the mutual good. So it's not a contract. We're familiar with contracts. Contracts is really the fulfillment of one person's part of the contract with another, and so if you don't fulfill yours, I don't have to fulfill mine. That's not what a covenant is. A covenant is the two people come together and they both make an agreement that they will fulfill their part, whether or not the other person fulfills, the other side fulfills theirs or not. So what was the common bond that brought the people of Israel together? Well, it was much more than just an address. The common bond was God's sovereign grace worked out in choosing them as his people. That's what they had in common. Right after the command that we have quoted for us here, to not intermarry, here's what we read. So I'm giving you the bigger context of the Deuteronomy passage. Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six. He says, after giving this command, you are a holy people, or holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that's, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Oh no, you, you were pitifully squat for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But he says, it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath, here's our covenant, that he swore to your fathers 
that the Lord has brought you out of with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, therefore, know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall, therefore, be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Now, if you noted there, right in the middle, he said, God refers back to an oath made to their forefathers. See, God has always been a pursuing God who takes sinners and makes them his own people by his sovereign grace. So that while Abraham was, as Jesse Walden, sacred city elder Davenport said, a moon worshiping weirdo. God called Abraham to himself and entered into a covenant with him. And not only that, God would enter a covenant relationship with him, but through him would come a people, and out of that people, a savior, a Messiah, who would fulfill God's promises to Adam and Eve who sinned against God. That a savior would come who would crush the head of humanity's enemy, Satan. So the nation of Israel has a special place within God's redemptive purposes. And that redemptive purpose would be through a people set apart to reflect his truth, goodness, and beauty to a dying, ruined world. Their job was to show the glory of God and go out into the nations and draw the nations to themselves, not assimilate. So again, why the command against interracial marriage? Well, I set you up. That's really not quite the right question. God was not against interracial marriage. God was against, did you see it there in verse one? If you got your Bibles open, look down to verse one. Middle of verse 1 and ver- middle of verse 11. He was against, verse 1, their abominations. He was against, verse 11, the impurities of the peoples. So here is a universal, ex- universal principle that we live by. This is like gravity. Culture is always downstream from religion. What one believes who God is, what is wrong with the world and wrong with myself, what will save me and the world from that wrong, and what my ultimate purpose is, it's called religion, are the defining questions and answers to what is culturally acceptable. And what was culturally acceptable by the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians, and the Amorites was downstream from their religion. And what was culturally acceptable within these nations was an abomination. And that's a strong word. 
It is something that is abhorred by God, not only because it is contrary to his character, but it is also contrary to the image of God set within each person. So one of those abominations was that the children were expendable to the gods of the nations, just like today. Where in America, children are expendable to the gods of convenience, comfort, and material well-being. So rather than demanding men to hold accountable and be responsible for spreading their seed or funding adoption as the option for unwanted pregnancies, we live in a country that has sacrificed 63 million children since abortion has been legalized. See, this is what God said to his people in Deuteronomy 18. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of these nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Marriage is a covenantal relationship established by God before the fall, it's a covenant. Marriages before the fall. So it is not ours to change or fix as if the fall messed it up. Rather, a man and a woman came from two families into one and made a covenant together, promising to one another that they would fulfill their vow, whether or not the other fulfilled their vow. God understood the powerful force of being married to another human being. It is an intermingling of two stories. The commandment was not, was against, the commandment was against entering into a covenantal relationship with another human being who is opposed to the true and living God. See, listen how specific this concern was. Exodus 34, 11 through 16, just listen. Exodus 34, 11 through 16 says this, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hephites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You see? Or Deuteronomy 7. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, give your daughter, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. See, the issue here is of priority and protection of their covenant relationship with God. They are a people of God on mission to the nations. Their culture is to be a light is to be salt that draws all people to God. That was what was at stake. Oh, but it's even worse. 
In terms of redemptive history, it is through that nation of Israel that the Messiah was to come, the savior of the world. So the preservation of God's people is absolutely paramount. Now, if you're still not convinced that this is a racial issue, consider this. When Matthew was writing the good news about Jesus Christ, primarily the Jews, that was the focus of of the audience of his gospel, he starts with the genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, a woman. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, another woman. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, another woman. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. Now, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to say, why in the world were three women all of a sudden added into this genealogy? Well, let me highlight two of them. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. In Joshua 2, she comes to recognize that the God of Israel was the God of heaven and earth. She says that with her own words, her own lips, and comes under his covenant protection. Ruth was a Moabite woman, and God works in such a way in her life that she says to her Jewish mother-in-law, your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. And she marries Boaz, who is the grandfather of King David, of whom the covenant is made that the Messiah will come through David's line. God is a covenant-making God who pursues sinners like Rahab, a prostitute Canaanite woman, and Ruth, a Moabite, and invites them into his family, and in their case, gives them eternal renown as the forebearers of Jesus, the Messiah. Oh, he loves the races. God loves the peoples. Matter of fact, he brings them in, and he calls them to come under his covenants and his protection. He loves prostitutes. So the prohibition here, what is breaking the heart of Ezra, what is distressing him, what he is mourning, is that the people are getting off of their redemptive purposes as the people of God. And it's not just the common folk, it's the priests, it's the Levites, it's the leading officials. The very ones who were to stand in the gap for God's people and divide the leadership that is upstream from culture. We ought to be a people who mourn not only our own personal sin, but the sin of God's people and the sins of our nation, the sins of direct disobedience. So 
So when sin is disclosed, don't be surprised. Mourn. Now look at the third response, confess, confess. Ezra here teaches us how to confess. While Ezra is not personally guilty, he recognizes his covenant relationship with the people of God. So confess, recognize our corporate connection. Look at uh, verse six in his prayer. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blessed to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Ezra is not timid to use the plural pronoun throughout the confession. He's not using this as some kind of false humility. Rather, it is a recognition of the unity of the, the covenant. See, the, the verbiage that God used, uses to describe what happens to the individual when they come to faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is one of being brought into a family. Brothers and sisters of one another, Jesus our brother, God our Father, or a body where Christ is the head and we are members of one another. Thus, we enjoy the blessings of being in covenant with one another. And we weep over the reality of sin in one another. Your sin is my sin. My sin is your sin. In other words, I never sin in isolation. And your struggle with sin is my struggle. Galatians 6, 1, 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Confession recognizes our corporate connections. Confession recognizes our persistence. Our persistence. What really aggravated their sin was its persistence. They persistently ignored God's command. Ezra says, from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And Ezra describes this persistence in sin like a man who's drowning in his sins. Verse six, you see that? He says, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. We're drowning in this stuff. I don't have to go any further than the examination of my own soul to find all kinds of persistent sin. And I don't have to go far into the story of the church to find persistent sin. We're in a bad way. Confession recognizes our persistence of sin. So what is Ezra doing here? What, what, are we, what are we doing? Well, what we're doing is we're ejecting any hope in ourselves as the answer to the problem of sin. Three, confession recognizes our stubbornness. He continues verse seven, middle of, middle of verse seven. And our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the land to the sword, to captivity, to plundering and to utter shame as it is today. It's not as if God hasn't been good, he's saying. He's been a good father. He's been disciplining us. He's been disciplining us by the hands of these foreign, these foreign nations, these foreign kings. He's brought us into exile as, as discipline. 
They've received correction, and yet seemingly they're ignoring it. There's a stubbornness. There's a foolishness that resides in our hearts. Proverbs 27, 22 gives a disturbing picture for us. Crush a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. Confession recognizes our stubbornness. Confession recognizes our recent mercy. See, what really convicts, what really ought to bring distress to our souls is the experience of our recent mercy, God's mercy. And I just simply, simply define mercy as not getting what we deserve. Read with me verses eight and nine. But now for a brief moment, Favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem." But now for a brief moment. The stinking is compounded by that timing. Ezra reflects on that moment, 70 years in captivity and exile, and now a taste of liberty, and what have they done with that liberty? And they've rejected God's commands. In Christ, we have been freed from the enslaving power of sin. Yet what have you done with that freedom? There isn't a soul here in Christ who cannot relate with what Ezra is feeling and saying. What's our hope? Timing of mercy. The smell is fanned by the streams of mercy. That, verse 9, the extension of God's steadfast love, Ezra's referencing God's sovereign grace evidenced in the, in the covenant, the extension of God's steadfast love reached into their exile so that when the time was right, the king of Persia was his instrument to bring about God's blessing. So there was a revival of worship. There was, there was repair made. There is protection but it's these streams of mercy that just simply fan the smell of sin. And then the personal effects of God's mercy. Ezra prays, all this has happened that our God made. You see, they brighten our eyes and grant a little reviving in our slavery. So he's done this to give us hope. He's been good to us to give us hope by his mercy. He's given them something to get out of bed every day, hope. Brighten their eyes. A little reviving. And then what adds to the odor is finally the restraint of God's mercy. See, look at verses 13 and 14. He's, he prays, and after all this has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? 
Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnants nor any to escape? If God would pour out his just wrath on them for their past sins, Ezra knew they were still in debt on the old accounts. In essence, Ezra is saying, what? Shall we yet run up a new score? Shall we abuse his favor and turn his mercy into reckless abandonment of any restraint? So the confession recognizes, it recognizes God's mercy. It's timing, it's streams, it's personal effects, it's restraints. This mercy ought to inform our confession. Where does the stench of sin come from? Where does this darkness reside? Well, Ezra is recognizing that it comes from within. That the lair of Shelob is our own heart. That the deep tunnels is our heart. So that Ezra speaks as one much ashamed. He begins verse six. He says, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to you. He is one who is much amazed at the sin. And almost a loss of words, verse 10, he says, and now, oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments True penitents are at a loss of what to say. True penitents will beg God to teach them, I have sinned, I have done foolishly, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And he speaks as one who is much afraid. Verses 13 and 14. And after all this has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, seeing that you, you our God, have punished us less. Verse 14, shall we break your commandments again? Into verse 14, would you not be, I think he's saying, would you not be right with angry, to be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? He's ashamed, he's amazed, he's afraid. So where do we go in the darkness and stench of our own uncovered sin? hope and help in darkness. As Frodo and Sam go deeper into the dark tunnel, Sam pants, there's something worse than Gollum about here. I can feel something looking at us. Then as he stood, darkness about him and the blackness of despair and anger in his heart, it seemed to him that he saw Light. A, a light in his mind. He was remembering a gift received earlier in their journey. It was a star glass. The star glass? muttered Frodo, as one answering out of his sleep, hardly comprehending. Why, yes. Why, I had forgotten it. And then he remembered the words spoken when the gift was placed in his hand. These words, a light, a light, when all other lights go out. 
And then Frodo says, and now indeed, light alone can help us. Here's the light. The hope and help in the darkness, verse 15. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Now look what he's saying here. You are just. We are before you in our guilt. We cannot stand before you insisting on any righteousness of our own. No plea, no excuse, no justification. We cast ourselves on your steadfast love. That covenantal love, that love that is established in the covenant. See, John Bunyan, when he is writing about the fear of God, this is, what, this is how he describes it. When he's beginning to contemplate uh, that wickedness within him, he says, this is evident because the covenant in which now the soul is interested abides and is everlasting, not upon the, the supposition of my obedience, but on the obedience of Christ whose blood has confirmed it. And then he writes, I am united to Christ and I stand no more upon my own legs in my own sins or in my own performances, but I stand in his glorious righteousness before the Father. <laughs> there, this is where hope and help is found. See, Ezra hinted on this hope back at the beginning of his confession. He says, our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And see, even uh, Ezra knew the Psalms and, oh, and, he, and he obeyed the Psalms. He knew Psalm 36 verse 5, which says, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. So he obeyed and brought his sins to the steadfast love of the Lord. The, the collection of psalms, as we have in our Bible today, was compiled sometime after the exiles returned from their Babylonian and Persian captivity. Some speculate it was Ezra. Most agree it was an Ezra-like individual or individuals. Now, let me cl conclude. You're wondering, are we going to ever get out of this? Yes, we are. Let me conclude. Let me conclude by turning your attention to the heading of Psalm 89. So if you have your Bibles open to Psalm 89, there's this little, mine is all capitalized, not bolded, type. That's inspired. That comes out of the Hebrew. A masculine, that's some kind of musical term. We don't know what that means. A mascal of Ethan. <laughs> yeah. The Ezraite. So Ezra had some influence here. Maybe the compiling. Now look at verses 30 through 34 of Ezra. I mean, of Psalm 89. 
If his children forsake my law, God's children, forsake my law, the Messiah's children, forsake my law, and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. This was to be sung. It was to get into the depths of our heart, like music does. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant. So Ezra knew that God was just. He just didn't know what we know. How his loving father was going to be just and yet be also merciful and preserve a people through this covenant. Jesus Christ fulfilled the demands of the covenant. He obeyed on our behalf and obedience to the point of death on the cross for the ugliness of our sins and he died for our sins. He died for the uncovered sins. We ought not to be surprised by the sins of our father, of our nation, sorry. We, we're living in a culture downstream from its rejection of the religion of its founding fathers. Our motto says, our currency says, in God we trust. The God, that God is no longer the God of the Bible in which this nation was founded. And we ought to mourn our corporate sin of acceptance of secular humanism. We ought to confess our corporate culpability of our persistence and stubbornness in the face of God's mercy. We ought not to be surprised by the sin of the church, the evangelical church, as your pastor Sam says, evangelii. It has ejected the mission of God to be pressing into our cultural sins and it has become accommodating and hardly recognizable as a church. We ought to mourn our lack of saltiness and confess our corporate culpability, persistent stubbornness in the face of God's mercy. We ought not to be surprised by our personal sin. We tend to want to make peace with it and excuse it and downplay its ruin. Rather, we ought to mourn over it and confess how we isolate it into a private practice and confess its persistence and stubbornness in the face of God's mercy. And where do we go with the stench and darkness of our sin? We return to the steadfast love of the Lord demonstrated at the cross. The light in the dark places of our sin is the steadfastness love of the Lord. And for this, Father, we praise you and thank you. That God, as you have uncovered sin, even in our own lives this past week, and we have been surprised by it, you were not. And Christ died for that as well. And we have hope. You will not break your covenant. 
we stand upon your faithfulness. We stand upon your justice. We rest in Jesus Christ. So Father, as we take this bread, we're reminded again, Christ took our sins in his body and died. As we take this cup, we're reminded of the blood that was shed, a giving of life, a pain for the brokenness of our covenant, our side of the covenant, and we renew ourselves, we renew our covenant with you again. Thank you for this little meal. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.